Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. You are indeed, Joe. Good morning. I am indeed. And Seb Stafford Bloor, guten Tag, Herr Stafford Bloor. Hello, Joe Devine. Uh, we're going to be talking today about all the Champions League football. That's right, the big European football, the one that everyone loves. Uh, we've got PSG, Bayern Munich, we've got Dortmund, Manchester City, we've got uh, Chelsea, Porto and lots of bats. And we've got Liverpool and Real Madrid, plus a super special section at the end where Seb spoke to uh, author Michael Calvin, which is very exciting too. Tell you what, if you like to be excited about things, then you should visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. That's right, that's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where you can avail yourselves of an offer for £3.99 per month, uh, 40% off, I believe that price is, full access to uh, an array of uh, exclusive things like uh, all the football journalism and a really, really good uh, podcast that are ad-free. You can listen to our podcast ad-free. You can watch our videos ad-free if you'd care to do so uh, by visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Tell you what, it's worth it for David Ornstein's Monday morning column briefing style thing where you learn everything you need to know about football. Makes me sound like an expert anyway. Well, it doesn't. Well, that's all for our introduction, Uh, but of course uh, you'll join Alex, myself and uh, Seb on a journey through the continent. So we will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of thousands and thousands of bats. Okay, let's begin with PSG nil, aggregate three, aggregate three, one by Munich. Uh, PSG dispensing with their old final foes from last season, progressing, of course, to the semi-finals on away goals. Now, I have to say, Seven Alex, I watched the Chelsea game, which was obviously extremely dull, uh, and then I saw on Twitter afterwards all people saying. Wow, about PSG Bayern. This is one of the best games I've ever seen. Or, wow, this is incredible. Uh, we're treated to such wonderful football. What was it like to watch that game? I think on the basis that you opted and chose to watch the Porto-Chelsea game, I think it mainly just felt smug, actually. <laughs> I mean, it was well done us for making the right decision. It was great, though. It was, it was, it was a little bit of a, a rocky fight of a football match because it went back and forward and it felt like minute to minute there was something seismic about to happen again and again and again and again it was in fact it was a little bit of a tease as a game because there are a lot of missed chances and uh, botched opportunities but goodness me it was entertaining Alex you said the game was most interesting because it exposed the reliance of uh, both teams on individuals which I thought was interesting yeah I mean I think um, tactically speaking it wasn't enormously complex you you could see what both teams were trying to do PSG were looking to get Mbappe and Neymar isolated against Bayern's surprisingly high back line Bayern were looking to use switch balls which they generally did either slightly too early or slightly too late um, 
but to release those quick wingers to to cut inside and and attack uh, PSG's backline, which was without Marquinhos. Um, it felt more like this was kind of a showcase for individual brilliance, and in particularly in Neymar and Mbappe, um, you know, the, the, who had fantastic games. But also, I suppose if you look at, for example, PSG not having Marquinhos, they did look a little bit shaky. Danilo was kind of a very no nonsense centre back pressed into service there and hacking things away and getting headers in but you know it it didn't allow PSG to control their build-up from the back quite so much Um, obviously Bayern were missing Lewandowski they were missing Goretzka Nabry didn't play either so it, it sort of it it was one of those things where you felt like maybe whichever team had the most of their better players fit was going to be the one that won uh although weirdly you know in in the first leg Bayern created the better chances and lost in the second leg. PSG created the better chances and lost. So it's it's just a weird set of games over two legs, but it was fun. Well, I was going to ask Seb because Bayern were without Lewandowski, right? Who's, who's obviously the, the most important player in terms of uh, finishing those goal creations. It, I wanted to get a, a, a view of where both of these teams are at in their sort of relative transitional stages at this point of the season. If they'd had Lewandowski, do you think this would have been an entirely different affair or a PSG you know, showing up this year in a way that they couldn't last year against Bayern? A really interesting question because uh, Bayern having Lewandowski wouldn't necessarily have changed just how well PSG counterattacked in both games, particularly yeah. in the first where they scored three of the best counterattacking goals I've seen in, you know, in a really long time, okay, the first one was a little bit of a uh, Manuel Neuer botch. But what you'd be tempted to think is because of Bayern's territorial dominance in the first leg, they would have scored more than two. And you'd have thought that somehow with him on the pitch in that second leg, they would have found the goal that they needed because they came pretty close even without him. And I know that sort of, I, I know that the legacy of these two ties will be, of this tie will be, oh, well... Eric Chibamotting, you know, he's no Robert Lewandowski. And yeah, that's true. But I thought he played pretty well. I mean, he did a lot of good things. His um, his his two headers for the two goals were, you know, well taken. I don't necessarily think that was the problem. I just think it's a question of Lewandowski as a forward allows you to, allows you a really big margin of error inside the penalty box. You don't have to be as precise as you might be with another sort of more, you know, normal forward. But um yeah, I mean, you can't you can't take a player like that away and expect it not to be noticed. Okay, in which case, uh, you know, Pochettino's arrived at PSG, Alex. I think every time I watch them play, I try to I try to see Pochettino in the team. I try to see what kind of improvement he's made to this team since um, since it was playing for Thomas Tuchel. Is this a kind of is this a vindication of of Poch? I would say not in this instance because I think what what he was able to do was look at the fact that Bayern were going to continue playing this high defensive line, but doing so with Jerome Bertang, who is not the athlete he once was, and Hernandez, who is, um, all, well, he's sort of settling in in Germany still. You know, sometimes he's a left-back, sometimes he's a left-sided centre-back. So there was defensive room to exploit, and I think Pochettino solved that particular problem in the most sensible and effective way possible. But the PSG midfield balance still isn't there. Verratti was on the bench. He's coming back from injury. I thought Draxler and Di Maria did well. But but in central midfield, there wasn't enough of the control and ball progression that Pochettino likes to have transitioning from his defensive third towards the midfield third. Um, so I think, 
I think there's definitely still work to be done, but he's in the fortuitous position, obviously, that he's got arguably the world's best all-round footballer um, and Neymar, who you know played as well as I've seen him play recently. I saw you tweeting about Bayern's extremely, or I think you called it, dangerously high defensive line. Did that? I mean, if they've got Jerome Boateng in the team, are you playing into PSG's hands a bit there, or what am I misunderstanding? No, well, well it's a conversation um, that came off that tweet, and people were quite right in saying that that is, that is what Bayern typically do. But I think my point was, yeah, but you don't typically come up against Kylian Mbappe every week in the Bundesliga. <laughs> and so you've got Boateng, who respectfully, um, whose his best days are very much behind him and will leave Bayern in the summer for good reason. And you're just inviting this big sort of 30, 40 yard of space behind your defence and you're allowing Mbappe and Neymar to to run into it. I mean, they got away with it, but only just, if you remember the sort of the Mbappe goal that was ruled out for offside. I mean, he was offside by about, you know, the the width of a, a fingernail, possibly. Yeah, I think um, Neuer had a, a surprisingly good game as well. Neuer played well, as well I, as I I've completely agree. for a while. And you can get away with the high line with someone like Neuer because it's not just a question of his ability to to play outside of his box or to sweep up uh, behind his defence. He is unusually brave in those situations. Um, he's so established he doesn't mind taking these risks and he isn't as concerned as others would be about making mistakes. But even so, I think... Um, I mean, you, you could say that it worked because I, I thought Bayern were the better team. I thought on another night they find that goal, they came very, very close anyway. And so squeezing the area of the pitch in which um, in which PSG could play was effective. It was particularly effective without someone like, I don't know, if you put Marco Verratti in that PSG midfield, I think you have a little bit more control. Probably have an extra yellow card at some point. But uh, <laughs> good enough footballer to um, take the sting out of games, or at least out of the rhythm of the game, um, not necessarily the intensity. But it was, um, I guess, in that situation, you've conceded three goals, um, three away goals, you, you have to take that risk. But it was, um, yeah, it, it, it looked perilous, didn't it? it? It it made sense as well from the perspective that because PSG had uh, Danilo instead of Marquinhos, Marquinhos is the guy who actually often under Tuchel played in, in defensive midfield for PSG. So of all of PSG's uh, players who can build up from the back and play it out like uh, Pochettino wants his teams to do, Marquinhos is absolutely crucial to that. Obviously, they lost Thiago Silva to Chelsea. Navas is a great goalkeeper, but he's not that great with his feet. Uh, Danilo's a kind of chugging midfielder, so it's not that sort of adaptation. So it meant that Bayern had to gamble on pressing PSG high enough to win the ball back in dangerous areas and create enough chances that even without Lewandowski, they'd managed to get a couple in. So I don't... I don't think either coach could have played that game differently. Uh, and I appreciate what Seb says about buying, creating good chances, but also Neymar hit the bar twice. Yeah. True. You know, that like it really, and I think this is why people enjoyed the game so much was it was a bit hell for leather. It was slightly chaotic and it genuinely could have gone either way. But I also think that both coaches couldn't have done differently. Do you know what my favourite part of this game was? Was the uh, the little bit of Di Maria's skill on the right-hand side in the second half. He cut it across. I think Neymar just missed the tap-in. And Jerome Boateng just... It's the most composed, extravagant bit of back-post defending I've ever seen. Just rouletted it off for a corner. Do you remember that bit? It was very good. It prompted you to make some derogatory comments about Di Maria, though. 
Yeah, I don't care for Andy Gilbert at all. But I, but even so, like the idea that you could do that in a Champions League game that is in that situation, because everybody else would just um, would just be worried about Jimmy Traoring themselves um, at the back. There, post there, there was some fabulous skill, particularly oh, from the PSG yeah. players. It was yeah, Di Maria played very well. I don't yeah. care for Di Maria, but I, he um, he's very very gifted. And uh, some of those, I, I think the point with Neymar is that. Uh, I think at his best, he can represent the fun in a game just because he is so extravagantly gifted. And you saw some of those moments. I mean, he very nearly capped it with a couple of goals and he probably should have had a few, but he was just brilliant to watch. Um, and that kind of exists outside of um, the imperatives of what's happening in the match. Like PSG didn't win, no, but I felt like I got my money's worth from watching Neymar. He's just so... Um, so unpredictable and so difficult to defend against and there were different points at which Bayern had um, doubled him and at one stage they tripled him and you just thought this is it's a it's such a, an interesting contrast it's such an, an interesting contest even to see the kind of the cat and mouse game between a player like that and a team like that and it was um, it was great fun great fun I don't care for Di Maria sounds a bit like a, an old Argentinian musical or something doesn't it or maybe a song from Guys and Dolls yeah I mean it's, it's, it's almost kind of has almost as many syllables as "Don't cry for me, Argentina." So I think you know it could be a little sort of making chorus number from Evita. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear Maria. Yeah. It's uh, pretty okay, much word for word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I think maybe I've been exposed. It's just the rhythm gang. Uh, Neymar. Once upon a time, he was a third wheel to Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, wasn't he? That's a fact. That's slated here as a fact. But now he's left out of those conversations. Uh, you say he was fabulous in this game, Alex. I don't believe you because I didn't watch it. Not that I don't <laughs> believe that he would be good. I just don't believe anything you're saying because I'm upset and salty that I watched the other game. Yeah, no, that's reasonable. Although this has happened to me in previous Champions League weeks where I've where I've had the shit one. Um, yeah, I just I find it weird. I mean, I think particularly when Neymar was at Barca. He he was very much in that conversation. He's been in Ballon d'Or shortlists. There is something, though, about him that has not allowed him, I think, to transcend consistently into that conversation. Um, and Didn't he go it, off the boil? Well, he, he did go off the boil. I think there's something in the fact that he went to PSG, um, which, without any disrespect to that club or league, is not the same as playing for Barcelona or Real Madrid or even one of the big English clubs. Um, so I think I think that probably does adjust it a bit. I suspect also the diving, the petulance, there were accusations of, of racism, which I think were unproven, but in a game against Marseille this season, um, there have been tempestuous incidents on, on the pitch. And I think in some sort of way he's his his personality and the issues around him sometimes overshadow that and there is an inconsistency in his delivery as well but it it just feels odd that this was this was a kid in his early 20s who was going to be the best player in the world and possibly one of the best players ever and it just feels like he's massively fallen off that conversation i think also at the time it was hard to see uh, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo continuing as late, uh, you know, to, to perform at the same level as late as they did, Seb. So maybe that contributed to it as well. Yeah, definitely, because the um, the longevity of those careers is unprecedented, um, even now. 
it's uh, they're still performing at a ridiculously high level. But I, I think there's something to there's two problems here. The first is that we're kind of trained to dislike the act of someone leaving a club like Barcelona and uh, moving to PSG, or you know, um, more relevantly, leaving PS, leaving Barcelona to move to French football, which is a little people bit people disliked him before that though. People did, but I think that changed the perception of him and his ability because he. I think there was there were still people who disliked him when he was playing for Barcelona, but I think there was a lot more grudging grudging respect for what he was as a footballer and the effect he could have because it's pretty difficult to argue with his ability. Yeah. I also think there's been a steady drip of stories about how he's been indulged at PSG. You know the the tales about birthday parties and the the idea that for a long time. PSG was kind of run by the players and players who were unhappy could run to the president. I don't know whether any of that's true. I don't know enough about the football club, but What's I think... the birthday parties thing? Well, he, he supposedly, I forget who wrote the article. It might have, might have been Roy Smith at the New York Times, but he supposedly had a kind of a, a three-day birthday celebration a couple of years ago, which is... I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't really have a problem with that. But if if you're someone that does dislike him intensely and you hear something like oh, that... Oh, I see. Yeah, that's yeah, a sort yeah. of... That's quite antagonistic because it feels, again, very self-indulgent. But I like to have a three-day birthday too. celebration. Though the opportunity year. would be great. Like, well, that, yeah, I mean, I've you know, you take it for yourself because the day before you go around, and you remind everybody it's your birthday. Yeah, and then yeah, on the yeah, day yeah. you get all presents and you open them all and you eat all cake. And then on the third day you eat the rest of the cake and then you send emails to people who didn't send you any gifts and you send them horrible anonymous emails. And that's the three-day. That's the three-day birthday. I mean, it, it, I'm sure Neymar clear. was just doing that. Well, yeah, it's not clear whether he he spent those three days uh, doing exactly that. I mean, I don't know if anybody got well, any sort of unpleasant emails the it? day after Neymar's birthday. I mean, if anybody did, then they should probably report that. But <laughs> it's there are anecdotes which, and uh, I think this is true of a lot of not just athletes but celebrities. If you don't like someone, you are trained just to believe the the anecdotes which describe them in an unflattering way. I think that's just that's just how it goes. But but isn't it the case that there are plenty of reasons to dislike both of those other two players that we've talked to? I mean, maybe not Messi as much, but certainly if you know the accusations of having significantly undue influence over a club, Messi I think has had that again. It's been permitted by the setup in Barcelona. So, you know, um, there have been other legal issues. Cristiano Ronaldo has had his problems, which I'm not going to go into. But, you know, there's there's some there's something about and, and, and Ronaldo as well on the pitch is not exactly lovable all of the time. There's there's I've, I've got it I've got it, Alex. What you're saying is that Neymar he needed a nemesis and he didn't have one because they play off against each other don't they if you don't like messi you like ronaldo well, if I, you like I, ronaldo you don't like messi whereas if I, I neymar honestly think doesn't there have is a nemesis that that's why i use the expression the third wheel because yeah i and i think the point you made about the their longevity and they've you know messi and ronaldo have existed at this level to the point where we now have two new ones coming in in holland and mbappe who can kind of seamlessly segue into the next duel, and they are obviously of contrasting enough personalities to be able to set this duopoly up again. And yeah. Neymar's just been kind of left, and I wonder if that's maybe where some of the petulance comes from, that maybe. actually he's not 
he's still an incredibly good footballer and and should be part of those conversations but because he's not had his nemesis and because they've gone on for so long and because there's new kids on the block now one of whom he plays with it makes it hard for him do you, do you remember the 2014 world cup when that game between brazil and colombia where colombia kicked him to pieces basically and then in the next game and i, I forget who it was against it was almost brazil were kind of in in mourning there was like sort of uh, I, I forget what the gesture was. I think I think they all sort of held up his shirt. They held up his shirt. It was yeah, like he yeah, hasn't yeah, died. Did, like yeah, it, but it, didn't he screw his back or something? Didn't wasn't he? Like, he did. There. But the point is, is that I think when something like that happens on a um, on a global stage, something like something as visible as it is in a World Cup game, and this wasn't his fault because it was clearly his teammates' decision to do this. I think it helped to create this perception of a of a pampered player of someone who was kind of embroiled with melodrama and histrionics. And but that bit wasn't his fault. I, I completely agree. But I suppose it was um, it was something that was created around him, which over yeah. time has sort of bled into his own reputation. It's a bit, a bit unfortunate, though, because I think that that 2014 World Cup was obviously hosted in Brazil, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Neymar had been sort of touted beforehand in the you know crazy Brazilian football media world for, I mean, I suppose, you know, ever since they were aware of the bid and ever since they were aware of his relevance when those two uh, lines created a fork in the road he was their young prince he was their hope he was going to win it for them on their on their uh, home soil you know and uh, i think that kind of is a bit like a death you know there's their actions are actions of of grief and i i can understand given how important football is in brazil uh, given how important neymar was to that brazilian team because you know the other, the other one was Fred. Uh, that that would be a really sad if you were just left with Fred. That was sad. <laughs> I can understand. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. but it, it certainly helped to create that perception. Though you're not wrong, Seb. I just uh, feel it's a little, little unfortunate. But thinking about the the sort of uh, maybe the need for a duopoly thing, you know, he should have had Harry Kane as a nemesis because Kane sort of has all the other things, doesn't he? He's got all the 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 apparent, or at least the perception and the apparentness of uh, of uh, all honour, and you know, he's all uh, he's all uh, for the team, and you know, but actually, I find it extremely boring. If he was up against Harry Kane, uh, and it was a sort of you choose one of them, I'd go with Neymar. You know, I think maybe that's what he needed some a bit of sugar to rub off. Sounds so strange. A bit of sugar to rub <laughs> I off. No I didn't really mean that. I don't know what that means. I kind of meant I... a bit of salt to his pepper, but I said a bit of sugar to rub off. Uh, quick word on, uh, uh, on Julian Draxler, please, Alex, before uh, we ask the final question here. I highlighted him only because we talked about him in the summer as being a sort of spare part at PSG who looked good when he came on but barely played. Um... And he seems to have found his feet under Pochettino. He was very assured uh, amid all of the hurly-burly and the running around and everything, he was the person you could rely on to take calm and measured touches and to keep the ball recycled, but also capable of playing it forwards through the lines. It's just interesting to see him back and up and running again and and was, uh, was pleasing. Yeah, he was a bit of sugar to rub on. Presumably City uh, is the biggest challenge left for PSG now. We we already know uh, the two semi-finals. I wonder, does it, it feels a bit to me, not sure if it feels like this to either of you, but do we think that the victor of that semi-final is very likely to be the winner of the tournament? You'd have to fancy them, I think. 
Uh, although it, it, it's a really strange thing to say, but it feels like Real Madrid are cursed to be forever underestimated in this tournament. Just because yeah, that just, is the thing, isn't it? They've suddenly well, we'll talk about Madrid a bit yeah. later, but okay. they've suddenly okay. just shown up with all their boring experience, haven't they? But it does feel like it feels like Man City. If 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 we were talking about this as a semi final, and Man City or PSG were playing Madrid or Chelsea, you'd feel that they'd they'd be getting they'd both be getting to the final. But maybe yeah, I guess it's tournament football, isn't it? One of the things that makes it exciting is its unpredictability, except that it is often extremely predictable. Yeah. <laughs> and in this case, I think it is predictable, isn't it? Yes. And okay. we're predicting an inevitable winner from the quarterfinal stage onwards. Yeah. Okay. Uh, fine. Let's move on then. Fuck them. Uh, we'll be back in a second to talk about Dortmund and Manchester City. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Okay, Dortmund 1, aggregate 2, aggregate 4-2, Manchester City. Of course, the City Boys, that's what they're called, isn't it? The Blue City Boys through 4-2 on aggregate. Uh, their first time reaching a semi-final since 2015-16. That's not that long ago, but it is quite long ago. Breaking a streak of three straight quarter-final exits. You've done it, Pep. Hmm? And against Dortmund, even after Bellingham's goal, it felt a little bit inevitable, Alex. Nice goal, though. Oh, lovely goal. Yeah, really, really good. Uh, I, I mean, Bellingham, I thought, was was great. But yes, I I suppose City just feel uh, inevitable now. Um, not, I'm not saying that as a winner, but just in the course of each individual game, the level of control that they exert, their ability to move the ball around quickly, uh, to retain possession, even under significant duress. I mean... Uh, Borussia Dortmund really pressed them very hard to start with and, and did unsettle them to a degree. But City always seemed to find a pass. They always seemed to be able to squeeze the ball to the next person. Um, and they also have, particularly in De Bruyne, who I just thought was incredible uh, in that game, just everywhere doing everything. They've got somebody who can who can produce whatever it is that's required to to break down. I mean, admittedly, not an amazing Dortmund defence. Um, I I haven't watched them that much, but they've clearly struggled in the Bundesliga. But yeah, even you know, I, I think if you compare it to the PSG Bayern game, where it felt topsy turvy in a way where you genuinely would struggle to pick a winner, here even after Borussia Dortmund scored, you still thought, yeah, well. City will do it. It'll be fine. A well-oiled machine. Uh, Seb, Seb, De Bruyne is so hot. Uh, is De Bruyne the best all-round footballer on the planet right now? He's so hot. 
Yeah, he's in the conversation, isn't he? Uh, he's the best all-round attacking footballer on the planet, I'd say. He's just... I think he's just fun to watch. Also, not quite in the same way as Neymar is, but just in the way that he carries the ball. It looks so... Not effortless, but it's smooth and accomplished. And he looks so dangerous every time he touches the ball. I can't get over how hard he kicks it because those sorts of players, normally you think the ones who have the extra precision passing and, uh, you know, they've got a bit of the vision, that they, they, they seem to have a bit, you know, they've got a little bit more of the, the slow and steadiness to their game because they because they can, because they can outthink an opponent instead and they seem to take a bit more time. When De Bruyne gets anywhere within 18 yards of the of the goal, even a bit further, the power with which he hits the I mean, the, the power with, with which he hit that shot against the bar last night from being a little bit off balance as well. That's the thing that always, like, when I see that, I remember, like, oh, shit, this guy's incredible. I think with, with De Bruyne, there's... Sorry, just just very quickly. I think his... Not his most underrated attribute, because I hate expressions like that, but people forget how physical De Bruyne is. Because, and I genuinely... This is a terrible thing to say, but I genuinely think it's because he's kind of pasty-looking and he's got strawberry blonde hair. He's actually yeah. a fucking tank. He has surprisingly good acceleration he is able to muscle his way through players like he's got all of the finesse and all the creativity but he's bigger and stronger than you think he is and i think that's maybe something that actually is occasionally underestimated even by his opponents mm. yeah i agree i think i think that too you can you maybe you do underestimate him a little bit maybe that's what it is when i'm watching him and i see how hard he kicks the ball i think oh he's only a little guy i wonder why pretty um... hard though that all-round footballer thing, it's very literal, isn't it? Because he does so many things in the attacking space which are different, and he does them all to a really high standard. So we all know about that 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 raking ball to the, um, not always just to the back post, but into that area from kind of a shallow right position. We all know about that. But he also, I'm thinking last night of, sorry, Wednesday night, because it's coming out Friday, of that moment when he drifted across the, the Dortmund box past three or four players, he does that quite regularly. So regularly, in fact, that we kind of stop noticing it after a while. Um, his set pieces are really good. His ability he to can get slalom. to the byline is great. He can slalom. He does. So when we're talking about all rounded, we're not just saying, oh, you know, he's uh, he's good with his right foot, pretty good with his left, that stuff. Like he actually occupies a lot of different dangerous areas um, and makes his side even more threatening from within them. And that's kind of, I think that's the, that's the closer in that argument. Um, and that's probably that's what puts him at the top of that list. There's also that that video that we did where we had the opportunity to use some um, voiceover from him. And he talks there about being trying to be a, a genuine box-to-box midfielder. And I do think, again, his defensive contribution, his ability to pick the ball up from deep. I mean, like you say, we associate him with certain things, certain types of passes and crosses. But actually, if you were to focus on him for an entire game, I think you'd be surprised by how much of a shift he puts in in other bits of the pitch and how much ground he covers and you know he'll go from from marking the opposition 10 to being in the false nine position creating a pressing trigger really quite quickly like it's and that's as as an all-round footballer that's the kind of contribution that you look at and you just kind of marvel at his ability to do all of those things you know, they say of a player like that, don't they, that uh, they could play in goal. And I don't know if that's true in a uh, you know, literal sense, but uh, I would say of De Bruyne, he could play in goal. His Alex, distribution would be good from that position. 
We know. It, yes, that his distribution would be good from playing in goal. Alex, whether warranted or not, right, there's a bit of an expectation for Pep in these important games to suddenly tweak something, you know, tactically speaking, or as the cliche goes, overthink it. But we didn't see that here in the quarterfinal of the Champions League, did we? No, I don't think we did. Um, possibly partly because um, he's had to play without a recognised striker for a significant part of the season. Yeah. And so any of those little overthinky tweaks that he he does genuinely like to do, um, he's actually... He's been forced into them as a consistent tactical selection for the best part of the season. Um, I think the other thing with City now is, you know, he's made the adjustments to the defence. There's there's a greater degree of cover. The, the centre-backs aren't quite so exposed as they were last season. And he has this rotating cast of players. Um, for example, like João Cancelo, who was so good in, in the first half of the season largely not being used now with Carl Walker coming in at right back. Um, you know, Laporte isn't being used because Diaz has played so well. Fernandinho wasn't needed in this game because Rodri could supply the control. And, you know, it's just he can swap these bits in and out. The only bit that he's really been missing is a centre forward. But he solved that such a long time ago in the course of this season that um, he yeah. didn't need to tweak anything. Well, in which case, let's talk about Jude Bellingham. When we've done City, we feel like they're, you know, we're describing them as inevitable. I wonder if that lasts all the way to the end of May. Uh, but Jude Bellingham for now, probably Dortmund's best player on the night. Talk to me about him, Seb. So, first point of order, I didn't feel as if Wednesday night was typical of his season so far because he's had he's had a lot of good moments, but he's had some quieter games and he's made some mistakes. But I think it, it was the sort of the... Um, the high point of the year um, and the thing with Bellingham is I, I don't pretend to watch Dortmund every week but I watch him semi-regularly and what strikes me about him is that although this is kind of true of most young players he doesn't have a definitive position and that's a strength like he doesn't there's no area of the midfield where you think yeah that doesn't really work or that's a misuse of his abilities um, because he's a very rounded footballer there's still some naivety in his game um, and he will make bad decisions, but that's okay because he's young and he's still learning and he's played very little football at this level still. Um, but all across his game, there are strengths. So, you know, we've obviously seen what his um, his medium-range finishing is like. Um, his attacking creativity is much better than people really um, realise at the moment. I think that's that's partly because of Dortmund's dysfunction they play in little pulses where they they knit good moves together and then they collapse or that something stupid happens and they they suffer a loss of momentum but I think Bellingham within that um, his ball progression is very very good I like him defensively which is something you wouldn't expect to say about him because he he can be a little bit erratic and again because Dortmund um, Dortmund defensively are a little bit hopeless and so maybe he's kind of lost in that model but he can be a little bit eager with his pressing and, you know, a little bit haphazard. But um, he's a good tackler. And so by definition, you think, OK, this guy could play as a deep player, like as a, as a sort of pivot. You could play him as a true central midfielder because he's um, he's got fabulous stamina. He can go box to box. Or theoretically, you could even play him as a 10 because all of those creative attributes, you'd think, right, well, I, I'd want to isolate those at the top of the pitch and, and surrounded by players who would accentuate that. 
it's just great fun to watch a player like that mature and kind of acquire a little bit of definition over time. But he's he's super, super. Player. Well, look, th- th- there's one question here, Seb. One question, yeah? Get Ask him it. on the plane? Well, Get him yeah, on the plane. I, 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 yeah, I'd want to see him play for England. I, I, in a season where the under-21s were qualified for their tournament, which they're obviously not because they've been eliminated, I would probably say send him there because he's going to start. I don't think it's in Gareth Southgate's nature to just throw him into a into mm. a European Championship starting lineup, and so I, I think, okay, well, are you going to actually give him a chance, or are you just going to give him ten minutes, twenty minutes here, and you know, are you going to Grealish him basically? Yeah. Um, and also, like, I I, th- I think Bellingham's future is, is is as a foundation block in the midfield. Like, you build other bits around him, and probably a little bit. Well, it's not probably. It's definitely a little bit earlier in his career to be doing that at international level. So he should go because on merit he deserves to. Like he's certainly amongst the best midfielders in that group. Yes, um, whether it's kind of practically the right decision, I, I don't know. Well, I think we can all see why uh, Birmingham retired the shirt number now, can't we? Yeah, no one's laughing about that anymore. No one's laughing about that anymore. I mean, it was funny. Uh, okay, uh, final point on this game is about Holland because I can't not ask about Holland. It's very exciting, isn't he? He was kept quiet, fairly quiet, both of these games. Uh, but he is on a little bit of a dry run at the moment. Does this give us anything for how you know? I, all I want to know is how would he fit? Would he? What would it be like in the Premier League? Does this? Does this two appearances against City now give, tell us anything about what he might be like in the league? No, not especially. Um, you know, he's. Dortmund are dysfunctional. They sought to attack in a way that maybe doesn't necessarily suit him either. I thought he actually worked really hard. He occupied City's defenders as best he could. Um, he, you know, he did have a part in in the goal. Um, but I also think that the the season for him is in that weird slide. There's so much conversation around where he's going to go. Dortmund aren't going to qualify for the Champions League. Um, Yes, he is on a dry spell. They happen to the best players anyway. Um, so I, I wouldn't read a huge amount into it, no. No, fair enough. Sorry. Okay. I, I know you like some sort of definitive answer, but there often <laughs> just, get, just isn't one. I just get excited about stuff. Uh, okay, well, we'll be back in a second uh, to talk about Chelsea and uh, Porto. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, I'm Adam Hurry and Football Clichés is the podcast you never knew you needed. Every week, to quite unnecessary depth, we examine the words, the phrases, the accepted wisdom, the mannerisms, the habits, the gestures, the symbols, the sounds and the smells that everyone takes for granted in football, but which really are the glorious glue that holds it all together. For example, have you ever really listened to the Football League goals roundups? I mean, really listen to them? Because they all sound pretty much like this. Team X went into this game with just one win in their last 13 and when Team Y took the lead inside four minutes at Stadium Z, the home fans were probably starting to fear the worst. But Striker A had other ideas and this game turned on its head in the space of five minutes midway through the second half. First, a smart finish from the edge of the box brought Team X level and he repeated the trick on the hour mark to bring his tally for the season to 22. By now, Team X were in the mood, and although striker A squandered a gilt-edged chance to complete his hat-trick, on-loan Dutchman winger B made it three with a curling effort from long range. 
Team-wise misery was compounded in stoppage time when midfielder C's late challenge on fullback D saw them reduced to 10 men. An afternoon to forget for manager E's men then, but Team X will hope they have finally turned a corner under caretaker boss manager F. Listen to football cliches wherever you get your podcasts and also ad-free when you subscribe to The Athletic. Okay, Chelsea nil aggregate two, one aggregate one Porto. This was a boring game. Uh, No goals on the night for Chelsea, but major dice, of course. (laughs) They're through to the semi-finals, major dice. Uh, And amazingly, they face Real Madrid for the first time ever in the Champions League, which I'm sure is something you will have seen repeated on social media a hundred times before you listen to this podcast. But it is pretty exciting. Uh, You know, Porto scored a very late goal uh, for a mild 30-second rally at the end of the game, but basically nothing happened. Uh, Chelsea managed it quite well, which I guess we could discuss a little bit if we wanted to. Quite a mature performance in that regard. But I have no notes because there was nothing to note. However... There was one interesting thing about this game, and that was that the stadium they played in was full of bats. This was so weird because we didn't see this. We just had your WhatsApp commentary on it. Well, nobody told me for the first leg. I didn't watch the first leg. Nobody said anything about the bats. And then in the, we had an editorial meeting the next morning, and some of the some of the editors at the Athletic were saying, "Oh, I forgot about the bloody bats." You know, the noise. I was like, "Yeah, the, why has no one said anything about the bats?" It's like the, the Peep Show episode where Jez moves in with super hands. Oh, yeah, the snakes. Sure. There's, yeah, there are snakes. I'm fascinated by the bats. There's a Venezuelan businessman whose son also is involved in football in Venezuela, and he has nicknamed himself the Bat and built this kind of cult of personality around himself. Uh, and all the teams that he has involvements with have bats painted into their stadium and have bats on their shirts and stuff. It's Giving yourself a nickname is such a red flag around your personality. It's quite weird, yes. Oh, yeah. That's why they call him a big J. That's anyway, uh, sorry, uh, I, what? What I was going to say is that uh, I thought J. that uh, Porto... He tried Jay Dizzle for a while. Por- hey, 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 I'm working here. Porto could have used some of that echolocation, am I right? To locate the friggin' goal, Yeah. No, you didn't like that one? Okay, here's another one. Here's one other one. The groundsman called pest... I've got a page and a half of bat jokes. This is going to take a while. The groundsman called pest control, and when they arrived, they took away... from ten years in the past. (laughs) I don't know if we can use that one. You were warned. You were told that this wouldn't go well if you did this. How about this one? It's a shame... doesn't still play for Chelsea... He'd have fit right in, because he also sleeps hanging upside down. That's good. Here's another one. This is a good one. Um, At one point, no. uh, Couldn't be Batman, because he's already a character in the series. That's right. He's a villain called... And he's famous for... Maybe cut that one out, Adonis. Uh, What about this one? At one point, I thought one of the bats was a dragon. And then I realised it was just dragging his nuts all over the place. Cut that one out too. <laughs> Cut that one out too. Okay, did you know? Did you know most bats are fruit bats and don't eat flesh? Do you know who does eat flesh? <laughs> <laughs>
Wait, wait, wait. This is, this is a good This is a good one. This is actually a good one. This is a good one, okay. Some listeners, uh, you probably haven't heard many because I think most of them have been cut out. Uh, this is my Norm MacDonald impression for any Norm MacDonald uh, uh, fans here. Uh, the most famous villain from the Batman series is the Joker. He's a watchable, seditious character, famous for, for committing murders and, you know, doing fun things. Uh, apparently, the Joker in the Chelsea dressing room is Mason Mount, who's always entertaining the other players with his humorous quips and pranks. I hope he doesn't brutally murder someone. Oh, <laughs> 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 This will be over soon, listeners. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's a good job the floodlights didn't go out because it, it would have been a hell of a dark night if they had. That's not good. Here's hey, one. That's actually uh, one of the better ones. No, no. Okay. Come off it. The one about hanging upside down is good. Here's, here's, here's one. Uh, <clears throat> this is the last one now. Danny DeVito played the Penguin in Tim Burton's Batman Returns, released in 1992. If they recast that film now with the Chelsea team, they'd have to go with Timo Werner, because his form is so cold, he must live in Antarctica. Hello? And that's all there is to say, I guess, about Chelsea. We talked about Chelsea, those. We'll come back to them to discuss them uh, for the Real Madrid game. First ever time those teams have met, I'll tell you again. It's going to be exciting. Uh, the only other game that we have left to discuss uh, is Liverpool nil, aggregate one, aggregate three nil, Real Madrid. No dice for Liverpool, as opposed to major dice for Chelsea. No dice here. A mild-mannered exit, perhaps, to uh, round off a disappointing season. Still in contention for the top four, of course. We won't take that away from them yet. But Real, Seb, as we sort of hinted at before, uh, suddenly pulling out the experienced performances. Because it felt like in the last two games that they've looked uh, less the sort of lost, ropey-ish side that they had been earlier in the competition. Uh, thoughts on them versus Chelsea, please? Because you, you wouldn't put it past them just kind of pulling a boring one out of the bag. They're really quite impressive in a obviously very dull way, but they... All of a sudden, Real Madrid in the past have obviously been associated with kind of more bombastic football, spectacle football. And now they've learned, well not learned, but now they are controlling games. This sort of new mid-between era that they're, they're, they're in at the moment. Um, I think one of the points I take away from the Anfield game was probably that Zidane started with a back four of Fede Valverde, Nacho, Eda Militao and Ferran Mendy. And that's just like... And you keep Liverpool pretty much at bay. Okay, uh, Jorginho went out and probably should have scored. Missed a good chance. Um, there was a chance for Salah at one point as well. That should have probably gone in. But Real were really comfortable. And that was a bit of a shock. You, you'd think, okay, there's no crowd at Anfield, but Liverpool is still able to, still able to field Mane, Firmino and Salah. And yeah. Real don't have to score, so they can just sit down. Uh, sit back, sit down. Can't quite sit down, but they could sit back. And yet they never really... <laughs> they wouldn't want to sit down. <laughs> they probably wouldn't want to sit down. I, I don't <laughs> that think so. would be a big mistake. <laughs> and the other thing, the other thing, uh, and I don't know whether this is a failing in Liverpool or a strength of Real Madrid, but in that kind of situation, I think what you'd have expected from Liverpool, certainly at the apex of their form, was to dominate territory in a way in which Real couldn't get out or were only getting out of their own zones with long direct passes towards Benzema or you know up the pitch so that they could reset slightly further up. Um and that didn't really happen either. It was a very balanced game. I think Liverpool just about shaded possession by memory and they had more shots. But Liverpool never had that sort of that sustained period of concentrated pressure, which kind of provokes defensive mistakes. Um, 
and it was just very impressive. It was very sort of workmanlike performance. Go there, shut the game down, progress easily. They were never in any danger. There was never any suggestion that Liverpool were going to go through or Real were going to be eliminated. Well, um, because on this yes. point, you, you know, you've, you've put a Jurgen Klopp quote here saying, we didn't lose the tie tonight, we definitely lost it in Madrid. But you don't really agree with that? No, I don't really agree because I don't think Liverpool... I think Liverpool's precision is off. I think Liverpool's uh, chance creation isn't what it was. I think the decisions made in the final third by players like Salah, by Mane, by Firmino. Firmino is... I don't know whether this is a... This is kind of an end point in his Liverpool career or whether... He's just suffering in the same way that the rest of the side is suffering, but he doesn't look like the same influence in this kind of game. I actually um, have something to add there. I, I mean, I, one I more one this. more sentence before you do. One more sentence okay. before you do. I'm going to talk about Firmino though. Yeah, that's okay. But the, this clock okay. quote because, sure, sure. in a literal sense, yes, they lost the game in Madrid because they conceded three times. Nevertheless, um, in previous seasons, a three-one deficit wouldn't have been that much of a problem. Or you would have at least give Liverpool a you'd have at least give Liverpool a a, a puncher's chance. You thought right, well they're going to score one goal at Anfield, and then let's see how Real Madrid um, react to that or whoever their opposition may have been, and that never happened. So I don't know. It just felt like a very underwhelming attempt at a comeback. Uh, my point to add is that I was on the roof of a pub last night with the football mm. on. I was chatting to friends, not really paying attention to it, but there were two other tables of of, uh, of chaps who were watching the game and were clearly all Liverpool fans. And the biggest groan of the night came uh, before the end of the first half when Firmino, I think, uh, I mean, I looked as I heard the groan, but I saw the sort of replay of it. Firmino picked up the ball in a fair amount of space in front of the the, uh, the defensive line um, was about centre on maybe 25, 20 yards from goal. There were a couple of passes on and he massively mishit his pass and it went straight to a Madrid defender and all the pressure was gone. And that and maybe that's just reflective of the fact that that was a big chance and it was early on in the game and perhaps there was still some some hope that if there was a goal at that point that you know the tie could be turned around. But there were other groans related to other players all the way to the end and there was obviously a groan at the end uh, when, you know, a groan of recognition of, of what had happened and, and acceptance. But the Firmino groan, just in terms of those uh, seven or eight fans, was definitely the biggest groan. I don't know if that feels if that means. I, I don't know if you. Well, I don't know if you guys agree, but it feels as if the on-pitch relationship between him, Mane, and Salah has changed a little bit. That dynamic, I'm not sure how or why, but it just feels different. Feels less potent. Feels like the understanding isn't quite what it was. I don't know, we've, I've read stories about sort of tensions between Manny and Salah. I don't know if those are true or not, but it just doesn't, it's just not quite the same. And also he doesn't have the same kind of, Firmino that is, doesn't quite have the same dragging effect on defenders or deep midfielders that he used to. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's really interesting to watch. Okay, well, we will uh, continue to watch Liverpool in the Premier League, of course. Uh, but uh, for Europe, they are dusted. Uh, right. Uh, that's all for the Champions League discussion today. Uh, but Seb, we're about to uh, leave listeners with another very interesting segment to today's podcast, aren't we? Yeah, we've got Mike Calvin on. Mike is releasing a new book. The Calvinator. Um, <laughs> Mike's books in the past um, have been sort of deep studies of the game and they've been fabulous. If anyone hasn't read them, then, you know, sort that out. This is very different. This is very personal. Um, this is more autobiographical. But it's absolutely wonderful um, and he very kindly came on to talk to us about it and uh, also to discuss why he wrote this now um, and it's um, yeah it's great to have him on. Is it fair to say that you're a bit obsessed with Mike Calvin or at least that you're a real fanboy? 
Yeah, he's a good friend, Mike. He's a he's a nice guy. He's been uh, very very kind to me. Um, but um, first and foremost, is, his, is his he books. A, is he a friend or are you a fan of his? Oh, I don't know. It's probably a bit of both. I'm a, I'm I'm, I'm certainly a fan. But I how do you feel about fan. him? Because you, you you always get excited about Mike Calvin. I mean, no reason to say you shouldn't. I'm just saying you you get pretty, I've never seen you get more excited about anybody more than Calvinator. Uh, I think it's more that like I I admire the work that he's done in the past. Um, so. My favourite book of his is actually um, called <laughs> The Nowhere Men. You're becoming things... impossible to make fun of. Like you I know. Just, you just I've developed a resistance. Perfectly. It's I just, so I just, clever. I just sidestep you. You take and, it and... seriously and then you respond normally and there's nothing I can do. It's like someone has given me Joe Divine cheat codes and you just think, <laughs> oh yeah, he's done that, his little repertoire, he's, he's done that little part of his routine. Oh, well, this is how you respond to it. It's like, God, it's like a cold caller. I've just got my lines in front of me and I know oh, how to man. evade you. You've adapted. It's human beings so it's good It's quite at funny. Adapting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm it's enjoying it. frustrating. It's fr- I'm looking for a payoff, but it's frustrating. Anyway, fine. Uh, Mike Calvin, of course. Uh, uh, here we go with uh, Mike Calvin. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is the story of a boy with a ball and a game that brings out the child in us all. Football is about hope and heroes who entrance and enthrall. They've allowed me to share an impossible dream, turn fantasy into reality. Sport is shaped by tragedy and the preconceptions of politicians. But in this pandemic, we also give thanks to crusading footballers. This is a tale of adventure on the high seas and in the mountains. It's about being swept away by emotion and the family ties which stretch back generations. Whose game is it? Look at their faces. Just look at their faces. Okay, the book is Whose Game Is It Anyway? And it's coming out this Monday. Mike, I think the first question is, it's such a departure from your usual work. Why Why this book and why now? I suppose it's a reflection of, of the times in which we're living uh, or enduring. Uh, and the way the game is is changing, well, probably not for the better. Um, I suppose in the pandemic, we've is there's been a it's been a real time of self reflection, hasn't it? And it was the death of my father in law, and the subsequent discovery, 
um, of almost a family artifact, which almost highlighted the link between um, football, my father-in-law and his father. Um, and it, it sort of struck on themes of, of identity and what the game meant at the, the micro level, the family level, and that intimacy that the game can have in, in a family context. You know, it was a traditional story of, of you know, a boy in 1932 being walked to his first club, having a Saturday treat of sweets, watching the game, that sense of anticipation, excitement, and it was, it was created by, you know, what was a, a pretty mundane um, third division South club as, as it was at the time, Watford. That was at a time, his death came at a time, he, he, he contracted COVID uh, in his care home in Devon um, and passed away. And that, that came at a time where I think like perhaps many others, I'd, I'd grown tired of football's elitism and the hyper cynicism of it all and the you know the high priests of social media that I talk about in the book I, it, it just wore me down with its superficiality and it's it, it was just grating and I felt at that moment that re, almost a reconnection with what the game should be which is about innocence and intimacy and I suppose that that then set me off on the journey of well let's have a look through my life both in sport and and externally, um, because I you know I didn't want this just to be a plain memoir because I find I find memoirs faintly uh, pompous, um, and I don't think what we do for a living is is that important. I think it's great because you can have a connection with people, but ultimately I just wanted it to be a reflection of. Perhaps what I'd done, I've been really, really fortunate. Council, council House kid, you know, seen football and, and international sport in about 80-odd countries. And it's been my life professionally and it's sustained me emotionally. Um, and so let's let's look at what I've been through and experienced and then try and draw some conclusions about where football in particular and sport in general will be at the end of the pandemic you know what's interesting about that that memoir point is when i i mean we've known each other quite a long time and mm. when you told me that you were doing this project you know i, I was certain you're going to do it to a high standard of course but there was a little bit of me we thought oh christ calvin's having a midlife crisis because it sounded very <laughs> memoirish and there's um someone on twitter put it very well the other day they said that it, there's such a relief when someone that you know does something really well and so i was really relieved to really enjoy that um and to to like the book and the the memoir thing is is juggled really well because i think it's it is about you you're the principal character sure but there's an awful lot of commentary on the changing world around you uh as you go through first your childhood but then your career and i i mean i i had two reactions to it. i think the first was uh, well maybe three because there's in parts it's very funny but I was also envious because I think some of the things that you describe don't exist anymore. Mm. There's um, when you um, first get your ball boy gig at Vicarage, Vicarage Road, even like the idea of that now is a little bit alien. It exists, sure, but it's like um, 
it's like a world that's been sealed off. Does that make you sad looking back at it? That that kind of stuff has been replaced by or what you re- refer to as kind of superficiality in a lot of places and cynicism. I suppose it does on on one level um, because I said you know there wasn't innocence to that time. It's funny I was I was watching last night the um, Jack Charlton documentary. Uh, it's wonderful. My wife, and, absolutely wonderful. Oh, fantastic! It's fantastic. Yeah. You know, I, I I dabble in documentaries, but I was in awe of that one. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and my, my wife, we were watching the scenes of the um, island uh, team um, gathered around a big table uh, during, uh, I think it was Italian ninety, and Jack was singing Blade and Races. And my wife turned to me and, and said, "Wasn't that an innocent time?" And, and and that was what that's what I miss about the game. It's it is it is so it's hyper serious. It's it's relentlessly superficial and you know we're in we're in a time now where i suppose we're going through a a season almost in emotional limbo aren't we where we've got empty stadiums almost empty competitions played by players who are running on empty um so i i you know that that's where we are. That's the reality of what we are. And probably that reality is better than the alternative, which is nothing and, and, and a huge void. Um, I think that the trap that I didn't want to get caught in was the, you know, it was better in my day. Certainly, I think probably as a journalist and as a sports writer, I had greater opportunity and certainly a hell of a lot more fun uh in 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 the world in which i you know grew up professionally um you know it would be unheard of today for instance you know i was chief sports writer in the telegraph very quite early on in my career and i approached david welsh who was a really innovative sports editor with the idea of sailing around the world in around uh, in a round the world yacht race uh now can you imagine now <laughs> well it, it, they just they, well one they probably drug test you you know they're just thinking well, well why it's just a nonsense uh you know you can't do that um yeah i'm i essentially missed the first premier league season um because of that you know d- d- doing that project yet i come back and this is a sort of pre-internet pre-google age where uh, they actually had a room at the Telegraph. There were 25,000 letters waiting for me um, because people were engaged with, engaged by my own experience, my, you know, the sort of almost like reflected, reflected um, uh, experience for, 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 for readers. Now, I, I learned a lot from that. One is the basic human contact. I think also as a writer, if you're interested in something, if you're any good at what you do, you could probably get other people interested in it as well. So, uh, you know, I was hugely lucky that I grew up at a time where I had that ability to work completely off diary and do some, you know, frank, frankly daft stuff, you know, rallying around the Amazon jungle and up in the Arctic and, you know, sort of it's it was a it was a pretty strange process and but at the time um you know the the, the yacht race for instance was was cathartic for me in many ways because it took me away from the world in which we all live but I so I was I was I'd never been more isolated from the world 
yet I'd never felt more in tune with the world to the extent that when I came back and had to start reporting on mainstream sport again, I just couldn't take it seriously. And it is interesting that the sort of the key moment of a renewal, if you like, which I describe in the book, was actually an interview with Bobby Charlton, who was a childhood hero of mine. And he spoke, you know, very movingly about uh, Munich, but not so much the disaster per se, but the, the, the enduring links, the, the football ghosts, which were very real in his case. And that whole idea of football club as a community or actually as a family, which, you know, I, I, you know, I sort of brought into, into my, you know, into the books that I've done. It was the title of, of, of the Millwall book that I did, Family, because a football club is a family. So again, that all that that added to that sort of all that churned around in my head about well okay what is it that made me fall in love with football what is it that's worth saving and what is it that still exists there that maybe has been buried beneath you know the avalanche of hype there's a scene quite early on um when it's your first reporting job uh you're covering Watford and you end up playing darts with Elton John, which I'm not going to spoil too many of these anecdotes because um, one of the book's charms is actually these these left turns and these people that you encounter, which you had a, a far more varied career than I have ever really appreciated. And that's, I, I know you. Um, so it's there's um, it will surprise people as you go along. But the Elton John thing is interesting because it relates to what you said in that he had everything. Right? He had absolutely everything he could want. And yet he came back and took solace in what a lot of people today I, I think would look down on as a bit of a mundane environment, sort of rust bucket football club, um, not really heading anywhere until he got there, lots of debt, and it's a very ordinary environment, but there there kind of lies some of the charm. And, and maybe it's that that's kind of been buried under some of the sort of the fascia and the glitz uh, of today. Yeah, I suppose, you know, the Elton John thing was, you know, that was just a, you know, a local paper stroke stroke of luck more than anything else he had actually started the, by playing bar billiards with um ollie phillips who was my first ever sports editor but it was interesting that elton i think probably football's pretty much saved his life in many ways yeah. uh, the way he puts um, in his autobiography definitely yeah. yeah yeah and and that relationship that he had with graham taylor and 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 also i suppose one of the themes of the book is that you know we're we're very lucky to you know be able to you know form relationships friendships with people um you know that who who, are, who begin as subjects interviewees and and then you know it gets a bit deeper than that so people you know luther blissett was the first almost proper footballer that i actually dealt with uh, uh, when he was 16 and ripping up the South East Counties League. That was, you know, when I went into the Watford Observer. And we've, we've grown, we've grown, you know, we've grown old together. And, and, and you know, uh, you, that I, I went back to Luther for this book to get his, his thoughts on Graham Taylor. And also, you know, the, the arc of people's lives that we, we, we were privileged to be able to, to notate. Um, so someone like Luther, Graham, you know, I saw how Graham Taylor galvanised a, um, a community and a football club. Um, 
Yet when his name is mentioned today, it's with a snigger, isn't it? And it's, you know, do we not like that? And, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know? And and, and that's... Yeah, you know what? It's, it's a good thing to attack that because I the thing I remember about Graham Taylor is... Um, do you remember that moment which captures him confronting the supporter who's racially abusing John Barnes? Yeah, yeah, that's um, the that's the sort of payoff line in that chapter that I've, I've exactly yeah, yeah like that's kind of that's the Graham Taylor people should remember um, you know because somebody discovered a an early version of Microsoft Paint at the Sun like you know it, it's. Yeah, I mean, we could do that. That's an entirely different podcast. Maybe we'll write that <laughs> book together. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> but I, but I suppose it's you know you know the Bobby Charlton thing is 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 instructive in, in in because you know I followed the arc of his life many in many ways. You know, he was, yeah. you know, I was a you know a seven year old kid on the top deck of a bus going to school the morning after he'd scored that goal against Mexico in the 1966 World Cup. And I just thought, you know, God had landed. It was just amazing. <laughs> um, then I end up playing in the same press team as him, which is absurd, <laughs> really absurd. Well, um, how, how would you... I've always wanted to know, because that, that kind of thing, it does happen today, just in a slightly different way. Like, you, you might get the yeah. odd player, but you'd never get someone of, of Bobby Charlton standing. How do you play football on the same pitch as Bobby Charlton? Given what he meant to you, and who he was, that I, I don't think my my limbs would work properly in that situation. Well, my my limbs never work properly. <laughs> no, <laughs> on a football pitch anyway. You know, and I suppose you know, as I say in the, in the book, you know, I've desecrated Wembley and I've desecrated quite a few <laughs> Premier League grounds, and I am hopeless. I am, I am, you know, the zenith of my football career was Division Five of the Watford Sunday League, and I was terrible at that. But I suppose, yeah, it's it's we we go back to almost the you know, the the stardust, the magic that that you you can still find in the bottom of the dustbin, you know. And when 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 Bobby scored, well, you know, I, I better tell the story really very yeah, yeah. very briefly. You know, we, we're playing uh, the Swiss press the day before uh, the riot. And uh, associate, I think it was then, it's the England's sixth successive defeat. So it was, you know, going the name of God for Ron Greenwood at that particular moment. Um, we're three 0 down at half time, thanks largely to my um, uh, meanderings at centre half. Jack Charlton is in absolute stitches on the touchline, just rolling around laughing at us. Yet we go in at half time, and Bobby Charlton is going around the dressing room saying. We can win this. Next goal, we get the next goal, we're going to win this. And I'm thinking, you know, this is did you know, Did I have LSD in my tea this morning? Because this is stupid, you know. Um, so anyway, if if you're a, if you're writing really crap fiction, what do you do? You win five four after being three 0 down at half time. Bobby Charlton scores the winning goal in the last minute from thirty five yards. Dear reader, that's exactly what happened. And it was just like, you know, it, it was weird. it was really weird actually. When I was when I was actually writing it, I was, I just thought no one's going to believe this bit, and so I actually, <laughs> and not even my family. I hadn't told my kids about it, and so I put I put we had a team photograph which I found, uh, and that team included uh, two future England managers, Terry Venables and Howard Wilkinson, and um, uh, and Brian Glanville at fullback. 
and uh, you know it's the, some of the great and good of Fleet Street around us. And uh, I put it on my family WhatsApp group because I just thought, well, you know, the kids are going to read this and think, nah, no chance, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, dreams do come true, chaps. They do come true. I suppose a good question to end is because of the many people you brush up against in the book, uh, and it's one of the features of it, is how you get over that celebrity athlete fear, the kind of the um, the hero worship aspect. Because I think for a lot of people that are reading this, who read it, who younger people who perhaps have aspirations to go into journalism, it'll harm that desire because it it it, it shows the world that's pretty exciting and pretty broad. Um, and there's one moment which which really widen my eyes was when you you encounter Muhammad Ali mm. and your reaction in that situation is to kind of spontaneously ask him a question I think most of us would kind of shrink into our boots and sort of just um you know uh, warm our hands on his presence a little bit how, how do you how do you tune yourself to to treat the superstar athletes and the celebrities and the, the cultural icons the people who transcend their sports how do you how do you treat train yourself to treat those people as human beings well, I suppose that's what they are, aren't they, Seb? They're human beings. You cut them and they bleed. Um, with Muhammad Ali, I suppose you get... Oh, well, I certainly got swept along by the moment of that. You have an inbuilt uh, instinct to want to ask um, anyone that you admire or respect almost what makes them tick. Um, you know, I think you have to have a relentless curiosity as a writer. With Ali... He'd uh, been at the Hilton in London. Um, he was agitating to be allowed back you know, into professional boxing. Um, and he, he was a force of nature. You know, there, are very, there are very few people who have that aura around them. You know, people like, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to, meet, to meet Nelson Mandela as well. That type of, of magnetism and, and, Ali simply walked out into the traffic. He stopped the traffic on Park Lane, you know, four lanes of traffic, and he held court. Quick tip for a young journo, make sure you've got sh sharp elbows. There was an almighty scrum around him, and I sort of used those elbows to get right in front of him and started asking him questions. And, um, you know, there's, there's a photograph of the moment in the book. And, you know, I'm this Herbert with a terrible mullet and an awful... <laughs> um, sort of tie with 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 a Windsor knot, the, the you know the size of a the, the, oh, the, the anti a, a grapefruit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was about I was about twelve at the time. I, I think I was I think I was eighteen, something like that. And um, it was just well, fine. But but it was interesting. You know, my in my sort of youthful naivety, I believed in almost immortality at that moment, and. I suppose if I'd have looked closer, at that time he was beginning to suffer the first indications of Parkinson's, you know, the slight tremors. But at that moment, because he was the hero, a, well, not a hero, the hero, I didn't see any of that. I didn't notice any of that. And neither did the world. 20 years later, I found myself in uh, Auburn Hills in, in Michigan. And... Um, I was covering the Mike Tyson fight against Andrew Galotta, a Polish heavyweight, essentially um, 
surrendered. He, he he gave up after two rounds. Second round wasn't that one? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a complete circus. I think um, I think also from memory, um, Tyson was in. I think Tyson was done for drugs after that as well. Um, but anyway, um, the fight leading the undercard involved Layla uh, Ali, uh, Mohammed's daughter, and he was there. He came in just before her fight, and there was the normal human earthquake that happens when he turned up anywhere. And this was four years after the Atlanta Olympics, where the world had seen him diminished physically. And he was on the opposite side of the ring uh, to the press seats. And I just locked onto him, basically, in, and watched him. I think it was a six-round fight from memory. And he sat down and, you know, once all the, the chaos around him had subsided, the, the first bell rang and he just slowly put his, put his uh, hands across his eyes so that he couldn't see. And he kept, he kept his, uh, his, his, his hands across his face until the bell sounded for the end of the first round whipped out his he had a white handkerchief which he was basically mopping his brow the bell rang for the second round hands back over he could not bear to watch his daughter fight and that was you know sustained throughout the fight and that to me I was going to say reduced the hero to a human being. It didn't. It actually elevated him to a yeah, human being, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he was, at that moment, every dad. Would you want to see your daughter get punched in the face on a regular basis? I'm damn sure I wouldn't. And it was his reaction to that which which told me and reinforced, you know, what instinctively I, I, I knew 20 years previously that you know he's he's one of the greatest celebrities of our era yet he's still a dad who worries about his daughter that to me says everything you know yeah the book is, is full of these little tonal changes which i think anyone who reads it will find very very affecting it's um mike i hope you don't mind me saying it. it's a wonderful piece of work um thank you thank you it's it's out on monday um all in it all across the usual places. Um, if you've read Mike's work before, you'll know you'll, you'll be in good hands. But um, Mike, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. All right. That was Mike Calvin. Great guy. Great book. Uh, great interview, Seb. Thanks, Joe. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, whatever happens after the weekend. Can't remember. Uh, we'll be talking about that. Other things too. And it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, looking forward to that uh but for now thanks to those of you for for downloading and uh, we'll be back uh, yeah next week with something else just talking in circles now uh tipos au revoir Athletic.